0: Hi, welcome back to eight words or less. If this is your first time listening, this is the podcast series that distills leadership and management books into surprise, surprise, eight words or less. Some of you know me already. I'm Sammy and I'm one of your hosts. And with me is James, who is the other host. This week, James is going to be looking at Matthew Syed's book, Rebel Ideas. So, James, why this book?
1: Well, Asami, I mean, as you know, I'm I'm a huge fan of Matthew Syed. I think uh, his writing style, his level of research, and the way he can conceptualize ideas has always appealed to me. And we started our podcast with Black Box Thinking, uh, one of his older books and and one of my favorites. And Rebel Ideas had recently come out, so it was always on my reading list and thought it'd be an excellent one, especially as we start to get towards the end of our, our first season.
0: Yeah, it's a great book. Well, one of the themes of the book Rebel Ideas is how we are attracted to people who think like us. It makes us feel smarter when people are, he says, mirroring our own perspectives. It validates our worldview and even the pleasure centers of our brain light up. And so we tend to gravitate towards a like-minded, which is fine if you're facing a simple problem. But when it is a complex problem and we're trying to innovate and come up with new ideas, it's much more powerful when we surround ourselves with people who think differently to us. The argument of rebel ideas is that solving complex problems can only be achieved by assembling a group consisting of different-minded people and then getting the group to work on the difficulty using each individual's particular talents to provide some part of a solution. So one of the stories Syed talks about is Bletchley Park, the incredible team that cracked the Enigma code during the Second World War. They hired some great mathematicians like Alan Turing, who went on to lay the groundwork for modern computing, but also Stanley Sedgwick, who was a bank clerk. He learned to play uh, the Daily Crossword on his commute to work. Um, But Stanley brought with him key insights to cracking the Enigma code, as well as, inverted commas, the experts in that field. By combining different perspective, insights, and thought processes, sometimes even the most challenging of obstacles can be overcome. Cognitive diversity, the ability to break free from the echo chambers that surround us, and for us to start thinking differently, Syed says, is going to be a key source of competitive advantage for the future. And it also helps us as individuals to embrace our inner diversity, to become more creative and imaginative. So I guess it's time for us to start thinking differently.
1: My central message from this, and it was difficult to to distill down to eight words, but I suppose that's why we're here. Um, My central message is that cognitive diversity and constructive dissent drives team performance. Bang on eight words. Absolutely. So my first pedal, Sammy, is the benefits of diversity and the dangers of homophily. And I want to start to try and illustrate this using a question that the author poses in one of the examples he gives. Now, suppose that we are trying to solve a challenge with coronavirus and that we're willing to get 10 people and we ask each of these 10 people to come up with 10 useful ideas. As a guest, Sammy, how many useful ideas do you think you'd have in total?
0: Oh, loads. Um, Hundreds.
1: Yeah. But the reality is this is a trick question, Matthew argues, because you can't infer how many ideas might come out of the group just from the number of ideas of its members. Because crucially, if the people who comprise that team think in the same way, they have the same backgrounds and they mirror each other, they may come up with just 10 ideas. Right? Mm-hmm. They may all, all of the 10 ideas that are individually coming up with may be the same. You've only got 10 useful ideas. If that team comes from a diverse background, they think in a different way, they're cognitively diverse, they may come up with a hundred useful ideas between them. Each of those 10 ideas is set by an individual. So that gives you a thousand percent more useful ideas that is solely attributable to the diversity within that team, and this this concept, the, the the value that diversity brings into the generation of ideas, the innovation, is one reason why a diverse team is so important. But there are so many more reasons that uh, that Matthew brings up. Uh, the fact that teams that are diverse in personal experience, they tend to have a richer, more nuanced understanding of fellow human beings, and crucially, this gives them a wider array of perspectives and have fewer blind spots because. Because if you think about that and inverse when you're surrounded by similar people you're actually quite likely to not only have the same blind spots but to reinforce them because as you said in your introduction you'll both agree with each other everyone within that team that have the same perspectives will be sharing the same opinions and reinforcing them so you're you're effectively making those blind spots worse. And uh, mm. in, in the book, Matthew calls this mirroring.
0: I've heard it said that we are a product of the five people who we spend the most amount of time with, which of course can include family. But when I think about the social media platform that I gravitate to most or where I accessed before I blocked the news, where I used to access my news from, I can understand that I'm not really being exposed to all these divergent views. So that makes sense.
1: And I mean, I think that the next point, which is a really interesting one, is Matthew spends a lot of time talking about uh, homophily, the fact that as individuals, we like to be surrounded by people who are similar to us because they reflect our picture of reality. They reinforce our views and then make them feel more valid. They make us therefore feel more intelligent and they make us more confident of our judgments. And it's something that we all tend to gravitate towards. Um, And the challenge is, of course, that those judgments, those views could be incomplete or, or even wrong. And by surrounding ourselves with people who are similar to us, we're actually reinforcing the chance that we arrive at that wrong or incomplete picture.
0: My full name is Ahmad Sami Al-Ashrafi, so I tick loads of diversity boxes, um, but I can't tell you the number of times that I've come and met people and they've said something like, oh, you're just like us. Like, there was a relief somehow. I might have a Syrian father, I might have a Muslim name, but there's a lot more to the story than just ticking boxes when we realise the power of diversity. I, my sense is we need to go deeper and we need to examine some of the unwritten and ground rules that sit in the the corporate culture or sit in the system.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's so interesting that the comment of, are you just like us, it reinforces this point that, that there's almost a relief because people like to be surrounded by people who are similar to them. And I think sometimes a group where there are these different perspectives, where there is a cognitively diverse group of people. Actually, that discussion is going to be more demanding. There's going to be more debate. There's going to be more disagreement. But it's through that sharing of difference and that constructive disagreement that enables a team that is diverse to get to the right answer.
0: And I think there are sometimes dominant cultures. So I've sat on global and regional teams before. And after the video conference has ended, I have heard people say, oh, well, that individual is very passionate. And that euphemism was because an individual of that culture was very comfortable to perhaps speak up or to use their hands. Or, so just noticing where you sit in the world geographically and just to be aware of when we recognise those differences, it's something to lean into, to celebrate rather than to see as different from us.
1: Yeah, Yeah, completely. Uh, But it's something that's not always easy to instinctively do. And this is why cognitive diversity and constructive dissent drives team performance. So my second petal is focused more towards this cognitive dissent Concept. Um, it's around the problem of meetings, and uh, some it's why hippos shouldn't rule the world, which might sound a, a bit random, but I we'll disagree. <laughs> exactly. Um, so. Look, the first petal, You know, a lot of what we're talking about is common sense sometimes, mm. right? It, we all know instinctively that diversity is beneficial, and you don't have to look far to see the stats around this. Uh, you know, There was one McKinsey analysis of companies in Germany and UK that found return on equity was 60% higher for firms with executive teams in the top quartile for gender and ethnic diversity. And in the US, it was uh, 100% higher. So it really pays dividends. But But what I thought was good uh, in this book is actually it's only one piece of the puzzle because it doesn't matter in a way how diverse your team is. If there is a culture or if there is a lack of effective, constructive dissent, then you're not going to be able to get that diverse information, that range of opinions and the full spectrum of information. And therefore, you're not going to get the benefit of diversity.
0: It requires leadership, James. Uh, I don't mean the people who are in charge because of their designation. I mean leadership as a verb. And I know how busy leaders are. But this stuff takes time and it takes the practicing of habits rather than just something off a training course that you might implement once or twice. Because in my experience, your people are constantly scanning to see what are the unwritten rules in this system so that I can feel safe. And so if a leader wants to go quick, in other words, that they might prioritise being efficient over effective, then they might not give the space for people to be able to lean in or for introverts to be able to share or somebody who doesn't have English as a first language. And language is so important. So, for example, as a leader, if we want to actively seek out divergent thinking, instead of using closed language like, does anyone have a view? just shifting the language to and I'd like to really open up who has a different perspective and then if you disagree instead of saying no or but maybe replace no with I have a different perspective or instead of but maybe use the word and instead of should maybe we could think. These little shifts are going to make people see the world slightly differently. And over time, people, I think, will lean it that diverse group, will lean into sharing their perspectives.
1: A lot of what you said was, is covered in the book, and it's all true. It is interesting, though, because it's sometimes the wrong type of leadership can be the cause of the problem. So Matthew talks about a well-known mountaineering disaster on Everest and argues that actually it was the leadership style that inadvertently was a problem because right at the start, the lead guide said, you know, my word on the mountain is law. There can be no dissent. And you can understand why you don't want to have a discussion when you're on a death zone climbing Everest. But the problem was that there were a lot of clients that were in that group had information that if it had been shared would have saved lives, but the guide couldn't be questioned. You know, one of the clients was a pilot, and he had noticed cloud formations that were bringing in a storm, but didn't feel that he could raise this with a guide. Another had spotted that some, you know, previously perceived empty bottles of oxygen were actually full, but again, failed to bring that information. And he says, even to this day, it haunts him. In a way, you know, the the person who who led that expedition, who died on the mountain, was heroic. You know, he died trying to bring one of his guys back down. And he he wasn't necessarily, his leadership style wasn't intentionally wrong, but it was creating no safe space. It wasn't allowing any of this constructive dissent. And people died as a result.
0: That's really interesting because we talk about leaders being in this fishbowl, they're always on. And what a responsibility because we're human beings. And people, again, are constantly watching. I remember working for somebody who went on a course and they learned how to listen first before convincing, seek first to understand before being understood, et cetera. And the energy that the person came back into the conversation with me was quite quick. It was quite high frequency. So as I was sharing my perspective, I was speaking up. I noticed that the individuals got, aha, mm-hmm. aha, aha. Uh. And it only took a few minutes for me to close down again because I knew it wasn't congruent. I also noticed that the phone was out and it was pinging and occasional glances. So this whole leadership that I guess you have to bring. But they do say, be careful when your most passionate people become quiet. And sometimes we become quiet because we've picked up on a micro expression or something really subtle. And that's why it's so powerful as a leader to get meaningful feedback from people.
1: And it's not always easy to do. So, Matthew Side spends a lot of time talking about meetings in this book. He quotes someone who said to him that. Um, Meetings predict terrible outcomes even more powerfully than smoking predicts cancer. I don't don't agree with that, right? But I think it's too extreme as a statement. But as anyone who works for any organization can say, there are challenges with meetings. And Matthew references a study that in a typical four-person group, two people do 62% of the talking. In a six-person group, three people do 70% of the talking. And this apparently gets progressively worse as the size of that meeting increases. And what is fascinating is often the person who's doing most talking doesn't even realize that they're crowding them out. And Mm -hmm. I I think, Sammy, I I probably need to confess that as I was reading this, I'm maybe more often than I'm like, I'm guilty of the above. Uh, And reading this chapter, reading some of this information, just reminded me of the importance of being self-aware of the contribution that you're making in a meeting and making sure that you are not unintentionally crowding out other people's perspectives. Absolutely. And this this brings us on to the hippo. So why do you think hippo is relevant in this context?
0: Well, I know the acronym, but yeah, okay. we're, we're not talking
1: animals. <laughs> so, so the hippo in this context stands for the highest paid person's opinion. It was an interesting concept I hadn't come across before that the author talks about. And the challenge is that this person obviously has a lot of experience, obviously has a huge amount of value to add to any any meeting. But what can happen is that when they speak, they start to drag all of the opinion and all of the other ideas into their frame of reference. And you maybe unintentionally, they create these sort of power dynamics where people aren't saying what they really think. They're saying what they think the hippo wants to hear. Or, or even you know, maybe more nuanced than that, they're not even bringing up information they may have because they just assume that the hippo has that information and that by raising it, they will, you know, be making an unwelcome or unneeded contribution to the group.
0: And the problem with opinions is nobody has a monopoly on the truth. If it's a perspective opinion or a belief, then it is partially right and it's partially wrong. So, as long as you're in this dynamic of giving and receiving opinions, you're failing to tap into that creativity, the humanity that we spoke about before, and I think it's just humbling as a leader to recognise, and your opinion is partially wrong by nature of it being an opinion.
1: This is why cognitive diversity and constructive dissent drives team performance. Look, in the first petal, we talked about essentially why diversity is so crucial. In the second petal, we expanded on this and said, yes, you need to have a diverse team. But for this to be truly impactful, you need to have a culture that encourages constructive dissent that allows that diverse range of opinions to flourish. In this petal, we focus a bit more on some practical steps that comes from the book. And one of the first things is around building your team and being intentional about diversity, because the author is very focused on this concept of cognitive diversity, not just demographic diversity, whilst that obviously overlaps to a large degree, the difference is important. And perhaps if we go back to that example we talked about in Petal One around trying to find solutions to coronavirus. Now, if you're a little bit more specific, say you're you're not trying to find just general solutions, you're trying to find vaccines. Now, in this situation, then getting 10 people, no matter how diverse, but with no background in science at all, is not going to generate any useful ideas. I don't know about you, Sammy, but I'm not going to contribute to anything worth of value in that no, discussion. nor I. So it's important to have a cognitively diverse team of individuals but with the relevant scientific backgrounds as well. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the example that he talks about to illustrate this and around the breaking of the Enigma Code at Bletchley Park. And I really loved reading this, Sammy, because my grandmother actually worked with Alan Turing in one of those huts. I've sort of grown up with stories around it and, and always been you know, really in awe of my grandmother, who was uh, contributing in a very small way to such an important. special. Yeah, it's a, it's a lovely, um, we went, I actually went with her to Bletchley Park once and it was like uh, I was part of a VIP as a, um, uh, by association. <laughs> but, you know, the recruitment strategy that they used, as you said, it wasn't just about trying to get the best, most world-class mathematicians and code breakers. One of the ways they did it was to put a crossword uh, crossword competition and the people who were applying didn't even know that they were actually being interviewed to become part of this code-breaking um, team. And the fact is they didn't just stop with crosswords. Uh, they recruited people from a wide range of fields and it wasn't the individual brilliance of anyone within that team. It was the collective intelligence and it was the way that they started by building that cognitively diverse range of individuals that created a team that was able to, to achieve so much.
0: I think that with the digitalization of our world, this is the time to be having the conversation because the algorithms, the machines are learning constantly. And I think we need to be careful of a couple of things. And one is around cultural appropriation. So we talk about the best fit or the right cultural fit. And I always ask, well, cultural fit could be creating an echo chamber, but best fit according to whom? I don't particularly feel represented by politicians, for example. So is it the people at a policy level who are creating some of these guidelines, which are going to determine the composition of teams moving forward? A big tech company had a technology for recruitment, which it stopped because it found it was favouring candidates who were of the male gender. And this wasn't just because the people inputting the information were largely male, the CVs that the machine was learning from was from largely a certain segment of society. But interestingly, it was also picking up on certain words which were stereotypically or historically considered more masculine. For example, the words executed or captured were being favoured from some of the applications from females. So I think we just have to be really careful.
1: Yeah, and absolutely spot on, Sammy. And, and there are lots of examples that reinforce that point through the book. Matthew Side talks about the dangers of thinking in averages in a way. He talks about nutrition at detail and how people are starting to realize that you can't just say X or Y is nutritionally beneficial because so much of it will depend on the diversity within individuals. Someone may respond well to that nutritional advice. Someone else may, may respond badly. So I think you know that, that is the core of this petal is that actually your first step needs to be thinking about the diversity within your team's and being conscious about how you're creating that prior to actually trying to um, solve any problems or take any action. So, Sammy, back to the litmus test. Uh, what do you think the central message is?
0: Well, it wasn't just diversity. I know it was cognitive diversity. So it was around thinking. Uh, let me give it a go. So I think it's cognitive diversity and constructive dissent drives high performance.
1: Oh, so close. Cognitive diversity and constructive dissent drives team performance. Wow. I think that word is is quite crucial because it's a lot in, through this book was talking about is not you're not trying to focus on the individual here. The global problems we face, the interconnectivity of this world, more and more teams have to provide the solution. So you shouldn't be hiring just on the merit of the individual, but on the collective intelligence, the collective ability of the team.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, James. And thank you to Matthew Syed and, of course, all of our listeners. As always, use the hashtag eight words or less to share your thoughts, experiences, and any book recommendations that you have for maybe season two. Press subscribe so that you can download our previous episodes. Bye for now.